everyone. Welcome to episode 352 of Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. Before we get started, I wanted to thank our latest supporters of the show on Patreon. These amazing folks have stepped up to financially support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen. Thanks to Clay Guthrie, Kathy Proenza, Chuck Wood, William Bruce McConnell, Cindy Wilson, and Ben Williamson. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart. This week on the podcast, I recorded with Aussie photographer Tanya Malkin, who comes highly recommended by her esteemed peers from Down Under. Tanya was recently awarded in the Australian Ge- Geographic Competition and won the landscape category with a stunning out-of-camera aerial image that stopped me in my tracks. All right, let's get to this week's episode with Tanya Malkin. All right, Tanya Malkin, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, we are literally on the other side of the planet from each other, which always presents amazing logistical challenges, but we made it happen today. We did. We did, especially after my bad weather and bad satellite um, a few weeks right, ago. Right. Yeah. Well, you have come recommended by so many former guests of the show, especially all of our friends down in Australia, you know, Mika Boynton, Matt Palmer. Rick, Ricardo de Cuna, gosh, the, the list goes on of people who have recommended you. And then just last week, I recorded with someone named Ian Gaston, and he recommended oh. you. So everyone loves you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't get to speak or see people often, so it's nice that they <laughs> yeah, think of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Well, so, Tanya, for people who aren't familiar with you and your photography, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? So, I, well, I'm a photographer. Um, I call myself a photographic artist because I think it has a better ring to it. Um, you know, I've always loved photography since I was a little kid, um, you know, seven or eight years old. And I studied art and design at university with a major in fine art and art history. And desperately wanted to be a photographer but um, I yeah I, I went with the visual arts painting um, so I used to take photos to reference for paintings mostly and then as the years went on and everything I just ditched the paintbrushes and the paints and went back to photography I guess yeah <laughs> yeah huh. so it's funny we I teach a lot of workshops and I feel like over the last year I've had three people come on a workshop who are full-time painters and they just wanted to get really good photographs that they could paint. Yeah, yeah. That's, I don't think it's that uncommon. No, no. And um, I've always been a landscaper. Like I love landscapes. I enjoy being out in remote areas and out in the bush and always have ever since I was little and um and so I guess like my my preferred painting genre has always been landscape and then um and as well as my photography genre I was you know an avid postcard collector when I was five years old (laughs) like you know so um I I love beautiful landscapes I love landscapes that you want to dive into and touch and be a part of and yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I love that. And then are you doing photography full time now or do you uh do you uh, do you do other th- things to to put food on the table? What is that um, like? There's not a lot of food on the table, so I do photography full time. Oh, so you're a photographer, uh, I get it. <laughs> I'm an artist, so I make ceramic things and sell them and I make I do um I paint a little bit. I I draw mostly, um, and and I take photographs. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So you're just sell, selling various artworks uh, at art fairs. Like, what is that like? Down yeah, there? art fairs, or basically wherever I can like most artists that don't have a rich benefactor. Um, I <laughs> I I get try and sell stuff whichever way I can. Um, yeah, so occasionally exhibit, um, 
and markets and art fairs and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, so I know that you'd mentioned that you were first a painter and a sculptor. And I'm curious, uh, how has studying and using other artistic mediums like that informed your approach to photography? I guess the the main thing is light and color and um, and how you use that. And like when you are painting a story, it has to be about something. Um, so the constant, when I'm photographing, um, good or bad, <laughs> um, it has to be about something. So it's, co it's a constant question, you know, what's it about? Is it about the tree? Is it about the sky? What comes forward? What comes back? Where does my eye go as soon as I look at the scene or as soon as I look at the picture? Or, you know, if, if I'm doing a painting of a beautiful tree, um, it's a, around how I can highlight that tree. And I guess with photography and any kind of art or any kind of visual art, you need to have ways to pull the viewer in to look at an area that is interesting for you, but also becomes interesting and relevant for them. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, maybe we can use a, a practical example to help further illustrate what you're trying to say here. Um, so my guest last week, Ian Gaston, he mentioned that he there's a photograph of yours that just stopped him in his tracks and literally blew his mind and he just could not stop looking at it for literally like minutes and minutes and minutes on end. Okay. And it's called a, a portrait of me, I believe. Something is uh, that sound yeah. Like? yeah. Yeah. And maybe you could maybe you could talk a little bit about that particular image and how your um history in using different art mediums helped you create that image and, and, and what that image is about and how it is a successful piece of art because of that? Um, I really love that piece of art and well, that image and um, and I, I guess like it, it resonates with me. Um, it's from a trip that I did with Mika a few years ago now, a long time ago now to Iceland um, that we'd both been desperately wanting to do and we had planned it completely blind. You know, there was not too many Aussies that had photographed Iceland at that time and, and you know, we sort of digging around plane companies and trying to find somebody that flew that fitted our budget <laughs> and, and all that kind of thing. And, um, and... I love black and whites, and um, but it's, I find it very difficult to, with aerials, there's not too many that hold up as black and whites, um, I think, particularly in the areas that I photograph in Australia, um, because the colours kind of tell the story, and sometimes the contrast is created with the colour rather than the lights and the shadows, so um, I find it very, very hard to find a, an aerial that holds up as black and white but that image from Iceland um, which is an aerial over the glacial rivers <laughs> like most of the aerials in Iceland um, but the human form in that image and the two human forms that I could see and the way that the, the water and the um, soil um, created it almost like it was veiled um, and, and then the portrait of the woman standing behind the man, um, which I saw as a strong, solid figure, and the woman was kind of subdued and and all of that kind of thing. So I guess um, when I took that image, I had some things going on in my life, like everybody, <laughs> you know. And you know, there's all that thing that us creatives go through. You know, am I good enough? Am I not good enough? And you know, you have that whole creative journey up and down, um, and yeah, so I guess that image just, for me, perfectly represented where I was and had, had just come out of in that point of my life. Um, you know, I, I sort of hadn't taken a photo after that for about three years, um, so that kind of said oh, well. something about where I was sitting <laughs> at that time. Um, you know, even a photo with my phone, so I was focused on painting and drawing um, because of where I was 
at that particular time. Um, and so I guess that, that image illustrates for me perfectly at that time where I was, um, what my story was that was relevant to how I was feeling at that time, I guess. So I just, yeah, the way that the woman is veiled and like, a, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> that's, that's so, the story. <laughs> yeah, no, so I'm curious, when you were photographing that scene, did that story immediately strike you? Or was it something that you pieced together after you were editing it? Um, I guess to my downfall, um, I, not to my downfall, when I'm flying, um, I'm very, I look for things and I saw that at the time. So that's a single frame image, basically. Um, so I don't take 3,000 images on an aerial shoot. Like, you know, it's not on rapid fire, I call it. And <laughs> very calculated with my shots if I can't frame it. I don't take it so sometimes like I'll only come home with 400 roughly you know like um, from three hours of flying which is probably very low from people that I've flown with what I see they take or from what I hear you know like so yeah I'm sure I got one in that <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, um, I mean, I, I don't see that in my research. Like, I didn't see that. I didn't go there to take that image. But when I'm flying, I'm constantly looking um, for things and shapes will form. And, um, you know, and a lot of it might just have to do with how high the exact height of the water that day. I might go back to reshoot that because I didn't quite nail it and it's not there. I can't find it anymore. So, Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, interesting. Um, when I speak to a lot of photographers who are able to come up with images like that one, I find that they are relying a great deal on instinct and pattern recognition in terms of understanding that, okay, whatever I'm seeing right now, I know there's a lot of potential in this image. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and it sounds like that's kind of your approach to capturing photographs, especially in the air, is that you're just relying on your instincts to to drive drive it home. Yeah, and um, and it doesn't always work out. And then I get home and I'm like, how did I not see that in the sky? Like, you know, just, but I was looking at this bit, so <laughs> which again is you know a little bit to my downfall because once you miss it, you miss it. It's gone and it's pretty much gone forever unless it's a landform or something. Well, there's all landforms, but unless you know, like if, if it's if it's tidal. You're never going to get that exact same thing again, so you can't go back and reshoot it. But again, like I think, um, I, I don't, I don't, I usually come home from flights with something. So I guess um, there was, you know, back. Oh, it's, it's scary. It's nearly thirty years ago, <laughs> twenty twenty five years ago. You know, I do workshops with photographers. And it was all about pre-visualisation. You have to know before you take the photograph what the photograph's going to be. And, you know, that was my training. You know, like, you know the music score when you're playing a symphony. You know, like, it's that, that's how I was trained. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting, though, is that your approach, I would say, doesn't really involve a lot of pre-visualisation. Pre I mean... From, in my mind, pre-visualization means that before you're even walking or flying to wherever you're going, you know kind of in, in your mind what you're looking for, whereas your approach is just look, respond, react, and capture. Oh, sort of, because um, like if I just went, hey, there's a helicopter, let's go flying, <laughs> that would be... <laughs> that well, would yeah, be... no, for sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I guess... I guess you're right. I mean, like when you're doing aerials, you have a flight plan and yeah. you know that you're going to put yourself over parts of the landscape that are interesting. But the specific image that you're going to capture, you don't know. Is unknown. Yeah, that's right. But I know what I'm looking for. Um, I know what my expectations are going to be. And um, I mean, I don't know 
what incredible patterns are going to exactly be there. I might not, I don't know that, hey, I can see a bird in that or, hey, I can see a lily leaf, which I think is one I just posted on Instagram. But I know that, like, I've done as best research and planning as I possibly can do to tick as many boxes as I can before I get up and know what I'm looking for. Like I, I come home, like sometimes there's spots that I fly all the time and the images are always so different, but I used to like get distracted and take, you know, shots of things that are really pretty, but I never do anything with them. So like now I just think I'm not taking these because I don't do anything with them. Yeah, it's beautiful, but it's not my cup of tea so to speak yeah yeah it's it's funny I find myself doing a lot of that too I was actually um I spent about five hours today looking at all the photographs I took in 2023 um and I was just trying to see if there was some stuff in there that I hadn't edited yet that I was really happy about and yeah I came across so many images that I remember being really excited about what I was seeing and it was beautiful but then when I'm I'm looking at them now and I'm like, yeah, it's beautiful, but it's not really that good of a photograph. <laughs> and it's there's so many images like that that I just I don't know why we're so drawn to capturing those photos. I'm glad that you have the discipline to just be like, yeah, I don't need to capture that. <laughs> I, I like it's funny because if I take people to a spot, they'll be like, oh my god, wow, 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 and I'm like, oh. <laughs> Can we move? <laughs> but um, nah, I guess I'm not spoiled, but I know what my... I know now, like, whether it's beautiful and, yeah, it's interesting and it's really pretty, but it's not something I'd print. Um, and it's not something I've printed for the last seven years that I've flown over that site. So, like, yeah, unless something amazing is happen happening, I usually I have a destination and I stick to it. Um, because otherwise I might never ever achieve the destination that I originally went up to do. So, yeah. Um, well, based on what I'm hearing you say, it sounds to me like you have a very honed-in vision for what you want your images to look like, what you want them to convey, the ingredients that make up the full dish, if you will. And I'm curious yeah. if you could talk a little bit about how you've curated that particular style or preference for the images that you're now seeking? I guess I, I guess it's come, it comes down to, um, well, the colour and the light, again, plays a, ma a massive part. Um, so, you know, and the, um, and the locations where I can achieve that, particularly from the air. And, and again, from the ground, like you, you stand at a vista and, and you go, wow, this would be amazing, at, you know, if there was a cloud and a you know, rainbow and, a, um, or, you know, and, and you plan to go back at a particular time or, well, I do, like, you know, you're always looking for vistas um, to photograph and, and, and you think, yeah, well, that's a morning or that's an afternoon or... You know, it wouldn't matter if there is, if there was snow or um, and, and things like that. And I guess it's the same for me when I'm from the sky. Um, but again, what I guess what excites me is I love the colours and and you know like I love the work of the abstract photographers, the aerial abstract photographers. That you know, it splashes. It's like a painting that someone's just like just gone you know thrown at the wall that with the color balloons and stuff but um but I love it when I can see things in the images I you know I I guess I like that I can see a tree or I can see a bird or you know for the because for that gives it an extra an extra point of interest something that gets my attention and that takes it from being oh that's really pretty to oh wow that's <laughs> That's amazing, and yeah, I guess that's. How. So I think what you're what you're talking <laughs> about is uh, pareidolia, right? Yes. Like where you can <laughs> see 
faces or yeah, other objects yeah. like a bird or a tiger or yeah, you know, a, and a I always holding their arms up or something. You know I what think, I mean? Yeah, totally. And photo judges should have to sit one of those tests, <laughs> like <Yeah>. because <laughs> <laughs> competition judges should totally have to have to do an aptitude test with those. <laughs> like, yeah. You make my life much better. <laughs> so many times people don't see the tree or the person or the <laughs> look at it and go, What is that? You're like, Can't you see it? It's really good. <laughs> Damn <That's> you. <laughs> Did you not make pictures out of clouds when you were little? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. Uh, actually just we just got done judging my competition that we do the natural landscape photography awards and there was a lot of images like that that have you know figures in the landscape or faces or and it, and it's always interesting because i think it's it's not that hard to find those th- kind of things but i think what's hard is to find those things and it also be a really good photograph like you know, including light and shadow and, and like exposure has to be good and, you know, it can't be too distracting and I think it's hard. <laughs> it is hard, yeah. Yeah, it is hard and, well, well I think it's hard. <laughs> um, but it's hard to frame it in the sky and, you know, you can't, you if you if you don't get it right, you can't go back. Like, you know, you can go back to a vista and, yeah, the light might be a bit different and the clouds might be a bit different. But the you know it's it's you get another you get another go at it, but it's not can't usually go back and get another go at it from the sky. So yeah, yeah, high so risk, high reward. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> high risk, high reward. Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> I'm kind of curious about the inverse of what we've been talking about. Um, how has you how has your engagement in photography helped inform your approach to, say, painting or ceramics? Again, in probably exactly the same way because I think I find that as I've matured with my painting, <laughs> um, my description of light has as well um, because I understand the shadows and the highlights. I, I have a deep understanding of the colours in the shadows and the highlights. Um, you know, like blue shadows and <laughs> purple shadows and, you know, a, and where there should be magenta and where there shouldn't and um, all of that kind of thing and where there should be a blue, royal blue shadow, <laughs> where there shouldn't be a royal blue shadow. Um, so, yeah, um, I think that that's definitely, it. Um, yeah, I think that my... It, it has absolutely given me a, partic- a, a very good understanding of colour placement um, in highlights and shadows and and, and um, placement of where the light's coming from um, exactly and how everything in that painting or drawing has to be precise on the direction of the light and the angle of the shadow and my rules of thirds and my not rules of thirds and know deliberate placement I think so yeah okay and and the angles and perspectives that I use yeah yeah cool well so how did you get into aerial photography I mean it's not something that someone just you know decides one day like oh I'm going to become an aerial photographer like how did you how did you get into it um I had a corporate job that I used to fly a lot for I was on you know flying to and from towns or locations, am I nearly six days a week, sometimes seven. Um, and um, I used to always take my camera because I would go to some pretty good locations. Um, the Australians would be familiar with, like, for work. Well, close, you know, I'd go to places near Karajini or near Alice Springs and, or, you know, the East Kimberley, Broome, Darwin um so they were my sort of work location so I'd always take my camera and then I'd always have a window seat and I'm 
very cranky if I don't get a window seat. So, <laughs> <laughs> not very cranky, but I'm always I'm like a person that doesn't have their morning coffee, I guess. <laughs> I sit on with my bottom lip pouted if I didn't get a window seat. And so, and then we'd be flying over places and I'd just be like, oh, I've got to photograph that. I'd love to photograph that. And then there wasn't, there was a few aerial photographers like there's a who um, has unfortunately now passed away, Richard Waldendorp, who um, is a fantastic aerial photographer. He passed away around 90 um, last last year or the year before. Don't know now. Last year, I think. Um, old school air, um, you know, film at Geo completely catalogued most regions of Australia um, from the air and. Um, and I've always loved his books, even when I was in high school. Um, so that it wasn't a big thing. And I hired a tiger moth, you know, the open planes, the World War Two planes, you know, with the oh, right. open yeah. open cockpit. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the only like way that I could figure out that I could get open air without any doors. And so I hired a tiger moth. I, I think it was like was around the 2000s maybe maybe a little bit after that 2425 and um and that was my first like planned aerial shoot and um I was hooked I was hooked <laughs> so completely hooked and um and the, and then yeah it's just down from there I guess um lots of practice lots of fails lots of not so great lots shoots of, uh... <laughs> lots of lots of money that you've spent on yeah, fuel lots of and money and <laughs> pilots driving and pilots and um and then of course back then you didn't have Google Earth so you know you did sort of but not nowhere like it is now so it was a lot of trial and error yeah with with locations so didn't really ever fly anywhere that I hadn't flown over in a big bus. So, um, we're commercial, so I, um, you know, whereas now it's a lot less error um, with selecting locations at Google Earth. Right. Well, I know you had talked a little bit about this earlier, but um, you'd mentioned to me in our correspondence that uh, you love to chase light. What does that look like uh, when you're doing aerial photography? Um, Because you're up high and, you know everything's lit up by the sun so what does it look like for you um so i try and pick what pick the right time of day for the right tide um and what i want to shoot um basically so like everybody you know like you've got golden hour and blue hour and all of that kind of thing or you've got your middays and um i totally get why there's a lot of photographers around landscapers that shoot in their high midday sun because, you know, sometimes that's appropriate for the location or the um, particularly from the sky. So um, I try to determine what it is I'm looking at and, you know, like with some jizz applications will give me measurements on the contours on the ground. So I know whether I'm going to have deep shadows or shallow shadows and... So I try and apply that, like, um, you know, if it's tidal, the jizz application that I use will give me the depths of the sand waves or the sand dunes and that kind of thing. And so if I don't want shadow or if I'm shooting a flat desert plain, it, it sometimes is better for me to shoot at the right, at, you know, a midday or a early afternoon sun. Um, because it's not going to give me shadows that interfere with um, with what I want to photograph. Like if I've got cracked mud and the shadows are all going the wrong way. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> you know, they're going into the picture instead of out of the picture and all that kind of stuff. So that's basically how I would refer to what I'm chasing light. Um, and sometimes I want long shadows, Um or I don't need shadows because the water and the wet ground will give the impression of shadows. So, um, and then if I've got wet ground on one side of a sand wave, which is the underwater dunes, um, and then I've got the actual shadow on the other side, it is really confusing for the viewer. So, yeah. 
Does right. that make sense? Well, can, Is that confusing? It does make sense. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's funny that you say it's confusing to the viewer because I think sometimes confusing the viewer actually can be a good thing because it forces them to spend more time with, with the piece of, with, with the image. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I've also found with Photoshop, people say you Photoshop that. <laughs> um, <laughs> So oh, like, no, we're not what have you go done there, here? You've, you've put the shadows on the wrong side. I'm like, it's not shadow, it's wet ground. Because <laughs> so, the light's hitting, yeah, like the hot light's hitting the same side as the wet ground. So, you know, it's not a shadow, it's it's wet ground. That's why that's dark and that is wet. It's dark because it's wet. It's not dark because it's a shadow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well... I will say that's one thing I personally really like about aerials is that because the perspective is so different and it's probably not something you've ever seen before, it almost always forces you to like stop and look like, whoa, 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 whoa what am I looking at here? And then, yeah. okay, yeah, it's an aerial, but like what else is going on here? And then I, that's what I like about it. Yeah, I love that. That's what I love about it too. You have to think and, you, and people can make their own you know, like if you've got a tree again, a tree and a vista, you know, it's a tree and a vista. <laughs> um, but with an aerial, it invites you into the picture to interpret it with something that's relevant to yourself at the time. Yeah. Right. And then I'm curious for how you approach your image making. Are you hoping that the viewer sees the same thing that you do or are you just happy if they find something in the image that connects to them in some other way i'm just happy if they find something that connects to them like if you know it's about i mean as an artist it's about somebody finding something that's relevant in the image to to them at where they are at that time in their personal journey and then you know that it, it the relevance might shift and become something else at a different time. So, yeah, if it, if it's relevant to them and, and they consider it and they see something that I don't see, that's that's great. They can be a photo. They can be a photo judge. <laughs> but um, no, I don't mean that. The, um, I don't, that hopefully, that didn't sound arrogant. But no, um, but. That's what it's about, isn't it? It's why we create art. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, earlier we've made it. We've made a couple of jokes about how there's no food on the table, <laughs> and about how much money you've spent on fuel and airplanes and things like that. Yeah. If someone doesn't have a lot of money, what are some practical ways that they can get into aerial photography? I guess you know I I don't have a drone, and you know some of the best ways and probably the cheapest because drones aren't very expensive now um, would be to get a drone and to practice with that, to practice framing and to practice, you know, what heights they like and what lenses they like and what colours they like and get used to, to steering from the air, um, I guess would probably be the most co cost-effective way now with the drone. And like, I've been... Re I, I go to buy a drone and then I change my mind for whatever reason. Um, might be because I've been camping and I've had drones fly over me all week. <laughs> so, so, you know, that usually turns, shifts my decision from maybe I should get one to no, I'm not getting one. <laughs> um, right. So, I, you know, I guess that's probably the most cost-effective way now um, for that kind of thing or if... You know, you to fly with friends um, and to fly with other photographers. Helicopters fit three shooters in. Um, you might not be able to fly as far because it will be heavier, but um, you know they fit three, and and the cost is shared is is a lot more practical. Um, and planes are cheaper, but. I find planes a lot harder to shoot out of um, for a number of reasons and I shot with a friend Nigel a couple of weeks, well nearly over a month ago now, a few weeks ago and we were in the plane and neither of us could see, <laughs> like, 
really good. I'm short and like Nigel's tall but he was at the front so he couldn't see over the nose and I couldn't see anything so I was just <laughs> relying on Nigel to like you know take us somewhere that was half decent and like we were in the area because like I picked the site but I couldn't see out of the back I couldn't <laughs> see anything <laughs> So, that's, you that's know, like, <laughs> it's frustrating. Um, I got shots, which was a relief um, that he used. Not as many as I should have gotten. I'll definitely go back to that site in a helicopter. So, again, like, you save on planes, but you lose as well. So, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I've only done, let's see, I've done two helicopter flights and uh, doors off, helicopter, you know, I'm in the window, like right, right, yeah. now, like it's me and air right next to me. And that was honestly one of the most fun things I've ever done in my entire life. It's so fun. <laughs> so fun. Yeah. Like, it's just so fun. Like, even um, well, back, you know, in the early 2000s, like, it wasn't easy to get a pilot that would take doors off planes and helicopters kind of... I live in the north of Australia and helicopters are everywhere because they use them for agriculture and they use them, you know, they're everywhere and they're not hard to get. But further south you come, they're hard to get because it's windy. Like, it's so windy down mm. south. <laughs> it's not comfortable flying. But um, there's a, so like, I was up in hot air balloons and, you know, basically if, I, if there was a way I could get in the sky, that I got in the sky. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'd the it the helicopters are so fun especially when you're in like a proper media helicopter where you can be sitting on the skids and sca strapped in with a harness and yeah yeah have you done a hot, hot air balloon i have yeah yeah i did a hot air balloon um how was that because i i i was i saw one flying around here the other day and i was like ooh, that would be really fun to fly around in that thing with a camera it's really surreal because it's so quiet. Like, all mm -hmm. you've got is, you know, because you're not in a machine, you're in, and it just, it's so quiet and so, um, you can't fly very high, obviously, but, like, um, the, um, yeah, it was just so, it was such a peaceful, surreal experience. And because you're doing it, like, with perfect conditions as well, so, you know, like, just... And, it, well, I did early in the morning and, yeah, it was just, yeah, massive long shadows, like massive long shadows. And I ran out of film. Mm. I was using film back then. So I ran out of film and then all I had was this crappy old mobile phone that, you know, the old... <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> the worst like One of the first ones with a camera like this. I can't remember what brand, the little ones that would fold open. <laughs> right, like a, like a razor, like a Motorola razor. Yeah, like one of them. And like, so I've got a couple of photos, like from the end of that hot air balloon flight on my old crappy mobile phone. But I ran out of film, so <laughs> yeah. That's funny. All right, well, I'm going to shift gears on us here. So, one thing you also mentioned to me, um, and it was more in the like, the emphatic nature of which you mentioned this in your correspondence, that you do not like cities. And I was hoping <laughs> you could explain a little bit what that's about for you. Oh, cities stress me out. Like, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a chilled out person. Like, I'm, I, I definitely have my idiosyncrasies with organization um, and planning. So, but, I'm, I'm, I like to be at Tanya Pace, <laughs> which is zero pressure. <laughs> um, <Got it. laughs> and like, um, and I don't function well with like noise, like going on. And so I, I spend nearly all of my time <laughs> in the bush <laughs> well I live in the bush and um, and so and I live in a place that I think the population is just over 200 people so oh wow um, and 
There's no traffic lights. There's not even a crosswalk or a roundabout. Um, and and then I live it's about two or three, two hundred k's, two hours from the nearest city. Um, and then, but I've just spent four months out bush um, with my dog <laughs> and my swag, which is just. Uh, do you guys know what a swag is over there? No, I was hoping no. you could tell me oh. what the heck that is. <laughs> a swag is just like a roll-up mattress, canvas, little tent thing. I guess like a hiking tent, but in Australia it's a swag, um, which okay, contains so a mattress, and you just roll it up. It goes yeah in your car. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it's just been my dog and me for four and a half months um, in wow. the bush. Um, so okay. So I know in Australia, y'all say in the bush all the yeah. time. And, you know, we don't have anything like that here in the United States. Basically, uh, you say some, like for us, it's like wilderness. Or, oh, wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the <laughs> desert or the mountains. Like yeah. we're more specific about okay. the in, in the environment. Yeah. So like when okay. you say the bush, is that just like a overarching term? Yeah. That refers to outside? <laughs> um, so I've been, where have I been? I've been in the desert. And I've been in the, we don't really have mountains, we got hills. So I've been in the hills, which I guess would be your mountains. I've been away from people, so yeah. Um, and I've been on the coast, so again, you know, a couple, three or four hours from the nearest civilised civilization or mobile phone service and things like that. And yeah. are you, uh, are you taking pictures like what what are you doing while you're yeah so i've been taking pictures i've been shooting um aerials mostly i've been i've been waiting between tides so because um the tide cycle is you know two or four weeks so i've been i've been shooting a spot and then i've been waiting for the next tide to move to the next spot kind of thing so i've been filling in four week gaps basically between tides so um, instead of staying in hotels, I decided to camp um, out in the bush, near the, mostly near the beach, because it's been so hot. Because we've been up over 40 degrees Celsius, which I'm not sure what that converts to in Fahrenheit. But, um, yeah, it's been hot. It's been, you know, well over 40 most days. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's where I've been. <laughs> well, I've nice. been hiding out, yeah, in the wilderness. So... So what does that what does that lifestyle look like for you? I mean, are you by yourself with other people? Are you uh, yeah, just me just and my dog, just yeah, by just myself, me and my dog, and, and yep. Yeah. And like, what are you doing for for food? Oh, um, I don't eat a lot. Like, I kind of lived off cheese and tomato sandwiches <laughs> for about Good. the last <laughs> three months. Um, and my dog eats very well. I've got a, like a fridge that runs off a solar panel in my car. So, um, oh, okay. um, so my dog, that's usually full of dog food. And, you know, we take, I think I start with about 60 litres of water. So we we'll take about 60 litres of water and then go so fill up again if I need to. And then everything runs off my solar panel. So, yeah, batteries, recharge, camera, laptop. Yeah, yeah. I've got a refrigerator that runs off runs off my solar panel too, but it's uh, usually full of beer. Oh, uh, I couldn't I couldn't negotiate on the space for alcohol. <laughs> alcohol got ditched um, for dog food and camera equipment. <laughs> three, That's you know, three tripods, two camera bags, like a lot. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> well. Another question I had for you, uh, because this came up in the conversation I had with, with Mika as well. How do you try to increase awareness around um, the indigenous owners of the areas that you like to photograph? Well, <clears throat> um, I've worked a lot on indigenous communities, so um, I don't know what the reservations are like in the US, um, but in Australia, they're usually fairly isolated and only indigenous people and um and I've learnt a lot living there and and have 
an amazing respect for their understanding of the landscape and the stories that connect with it. And I guess um, in Australia until fairly recently, maybe the last 10 years or so, um, most Australians have been very ignorant about, um, you know, the Indigenous connection and the stories and and the ownership of the land and all of that kind of thing. And I think that um, where I, I know the language group or the, the group of traditional owners that speak to that land, I try uh, always try and acknowledge um, and seek permission from to be on that land and to photograph um, that land. Like, and, um, you know, there might be designated tourist areas where people are allowed to go, like they've, you know, sort of said that they can go there, but um, I just try to make sure that I photograph it in a culturally appropriate way. Um, and if, in fact, it is allowed to be photographed at all um, and have some sort of understanding of the story that might sit around that particular site. Um, and then oh, where I know definitely that there is a tie to that site to a language group, then I will usually always try to acknowledge that group and also share the images with the appropriate organisation um, of who owns or speaks for that location. And also, if there's um, a story around it, like there's a place called Kalu Kalu, which is the Devil's Marbles, for example, in, in Northern Territory, um, you know, they ask people not to climb on the rocks or um, and so you know if I if I post an image from there I'll try and include you know that the traditional owners have asked that you that you don't climb on the rocks that it's Kalu Kalu that it's Kalu Kalu is so much nicer than the devil's marbles <laughs> <It is>. <laughs> <laughs> you know like, um, but yeah so and then use that as the reference. Um, you know, there's a place in the Kimberley called the Coburn Ranges, um, you know, which is also called Dutteroo. And so, you know, if I can educate that the actual name is Dutteroo, not the Coburn Ranges, then, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a step towards respect um, and an ongoing education um, and a need you know, to for people to appreciate and understand the culture that goes with it. And I think it helps you appreciate the landscape around it as well and to seek, once you have a little bit of information, you seek more. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just thinking as you were talking that I have a feeling that, um, you know, you're spending more time than the average person trying to understand some of these stories of, of the indigenous people and kind of what specific landmarks or different landscapes have meant to them, either through rituals or traditions that they might hold with those areas. And I'm curious how, for you, how learning about those stories and about those connections has influenced your approach to capturing images in those locations. Ah, um, I think... Um, particularly with the Australian Indigenous culture, it's not a competition and there's nothing competitive about the culture at all. And um, it's, it's um, very much observe and decide. And, you know, I think um, when you're photographing an area that is is incredible and untouched and so magnificent the need to rush around and take as many photos as you can and <laughs> oh my god oh my god like I've got to go I've got to you know look at that let's just run over that and without stopping and appreciating the you know the awesomeness I guess really is the only way to put it that's around you and sometimes it's best just to sit and take it all in and and be in that moment and understand the landscape and, and listen 
to the sounds and and just appreciate what is there and you'll know exactly the right time to take the photo or you'll know exactly the right time not to be taking the photo you know I think when you're out and you get you get a feeling you know that you know you get goosebumps you know that you know well maybe I shouldn't be taking a picture here maybe I actually shouldn't be here um, maybe I just need to sit and appreciate this instead of trying to take 10,000 photos and post them on Instagram. Like, <laughs> so I think um, there's, you know, and I guess, you know, we have, you know, it's not about climbing the mountain and getting to the top. <laughs> it's about, it's the journey on the way in and, and all the little things that you miss if you are so focused on getting to the waterfall at the end of the gorge or the, the top of the mountain. You might never get to the top of the mountain because of all of the incredible little things that are there on the way. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm curious for you, what do you hope that your photography accomplishes? It's hard, isn't it? Um, I hope that my photography accomplishes an emotive response <laughs> to its viewers um, I I hope that my photography gives an appreciation of the incredible landscapes that are around us and the need to conserve those landscapes whether you've seen them or not or whether they're epic you know like yeah um, whether they're epic or not you know they're, things don't have to be world heritage scale to be worth preserving um and it's so important my bugbear like you know how like video games desensitize to guns and all that kind of stuff and without starting a big gun debate on your channel um <laughs> but like i um, appreciate that you know because <laughs> Don't, I don't need people. Um, but, but the same with photography, you know, we, if we post beautiful mine sites, people are desensitized and, oh, look how beautiful that, you know, wash pond is, you know, like, it's not beautiful. It, it doesn't deserve to be, if whilst it's beautiful, there is an issue with that. <laughs> so, you know, like, it, it, well, there's a guy that's doing, I can't remember his name, like, that's doing um, Beautiful Toxic is his project at the moment, which I think it's Beautiful Toxic, but it's like an aerial documentary of um, beautiful toxic waste. Um, <laughs> and the colours are insane, like, they're gorgeous, like, but it's toxic waste. And so there's... I guess I'm not an activist, like, but I'm conscious of how we can do things better and we can do things better. And I understand that my, I wouldn't have my camera unless there was not a toxic waste pond somewhere. But I think that hmm. the, the need through images, both beautiful landscapes and through documentary and beautiful documentary and ugly documentary and um, and, and beautiful stories and ugly stories, like... I think, you know, like we as image creators, as image recorders, as recorders of life around us have a real opportunity to make people see things um, are, worth, are worth conserving and they don't have to be epic to conserve and it's important that we don't desensitise people. Yeah. Um I was curious if have you if you're familiar with uh, J. Henry Fair. No, I'm not. He has a whole book called in Industrial Scars. Yeah. Um, and it's it's all aerial photography, and it's all like what you're discussing. You know, like toxic waste and 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 you know the the what's happened with you know mines. Yeah, it's just know, tragic. The, it's the tragic. Act. But his, yeah. he, his his approach is like, I'm going to show you these beautiful images to get your attention. Yeah. And then that's the hook. Yeah. And now I'm going to tell you like how crazy it is what that, it's we, about. that this, this stuff exists. Yeah. Yeah. And it's everywhere. And, and, you know, like, I think 
again, like I wouldn't have my camera if it wasn't for one of those holes. But we can sure. do it better. <laughs> we there. We can do it better. Yeah. Right. Like maybe we don't always need the newest camera, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and oh, and, and now we know why there's not a photography company that sponsors this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, oh, but yeah, like I mean, it, it's you know the oxymoron, isn't it? So yeah, um, but oh, for sure. I mean, it's real easy to. Um, it's real easy to feel hypocritical, right? Because we're using electricity to record this episode. <laughs> yeah. and it, you know, That's right. that electricity requires the consumption of resources unless all of our, you know, unless everything's <laughs> uh, green yeah. or whatever. So, I mean, it, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think, yeah, if, you know, if, if, if people can, people can see the beauty and see that that's worth, that's worth, fighting for that's I think yep I like it all right well tell us about um I think what is it Australia Geo nature photographer uh, of the year say so, and the um, traveling exhibition yeah yeah so we um we have the Australian Geographic um nature photographer of the year in Australia so um so I was lucky enough to win the landscape category for that this year with one of oh, wow. aerial images. So and that's travelling around Australia. Um at the moment it's still on in Adelaide and then it's moving around the country. Yeah. What uh was it just one image that Yeah, just one image. Um and which image is what how what would you just how would you describe it? Um I describe it as a landscape within a landscape. So it's an aerial image and it's of the alluvial fans. So like I see <laughs> a tree and clouds and, you know, hills and things like that. So I call it a landscape within a landscape where it's actually creeks and it's a creeks. It's a, um, a dry season creek, a wet season creek system. So a dried out creek system basically gotcha yeah that's cool so how has that impacted you at all in terms of winning that has it gotten you print sales or like what has it done for you uh sorry i did it didn't get me print sales because i released a limited edition print earlier this year with my exhibition i had an exhibition earlier this year um of that particular print so i think like osgeo um, allowed us to opt in for print sales with that exhibition, but I opted out because it was going to screw with my limited oh, edition. Right. Yeah, um, at the start of the year. So, yeah, it's just been a good, good press and good, good features on it. And because it's in camera, basically, so in camera comp, so it's nice because I think a lot of people just assume that you manipulate to the point where it's not near the original image but so it's an in-camera basically with minimal um, editing other than your standard contrast and adjustments so, so yeah um, yeah is, is that is that particular approach to to making photographs important to you I think it is because my technical skills <laughs> A little bit 2005 <laughs> with Photoshop. Okay, okay. That's, um, that's fair. Maybe that's not fair. quite 2005, probably a bit more 2010. So <laughs> um, I try and get it right in the camera as much as I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, and you can make a good photo. You can't make a bad photo good, but you can very easily make a good photo bad um, in Photoshop. Most of the time, I think, anyway. Um, yeah, so no, I try and get it right. I try I try and get the conditions. I'm hopeless with dropping in skies and actually I'm really bad. I don't really know how to do it. Um, I keep thinking I'm going to do an upgrade skills Photoshop and it would probably really help if I read the Adobe newsletters that come out <laughs> to my inbox every month. I actually did their tutorials. But um, I need to... Do a bit of upskilling with Photoshop. So if anyone can suggest somebody, <laughs> I'm all up for suggestions on some good Photoshop um, 
workshopping. Um, I sort of did my Photoshop training when I converted from film to digital and then um, I didn't do too much after that. A few little professional development type courses. but Well, I mean, hey, it goes to show though that you don't necessarily have to use uh, Photoshop to create beautiful photographs no 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 and I think it's the thrill of the chase you know like that's half the fun of that's the good thing about photography is you get to go out there 25 times to a tree to wait till the light's perfect (laughs) um to get the shot you know like it's or you know you go up it's that that's that's three quarters of the fun I reckon is actually getting the image so the less time I spend on the computer, I'd rather spend time on the computer researching than editing. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. All right. So along those same lines, tell us about the the Fuji GFX Grant Challenge project that you're working on called um, Evan Flow. Evan Flow. So I, um, I applied for the Fuji GFX Grant, which I don't know if you're familiar with the GFX I'm Grant. I'm actually not. I mean, I know I'm familiar with Fuji GFX, but I didn't uh, know they had a grant. Yeah, so Fuji have a grant challenge every year and where they give struggling photographers some money to do a project. <laughs> um, and my project was Evan Flow. Um, so, well, they don't give you money to do the project. They contribute to some of the costs of the project. Um, so you apply, there's an application process. And then I think there was five international like regional five fuji worldwide grant winners and then i think there was 10 regional grant winners i'm not sure of the numbers i'm sorry fuji if i've got that wrong um but i was a regional grant winner and i got some money to go towards my project Adam float which is um basically the story of water and life and how it impacts life um, from the air so um, the relationship with water and the desert the relationship with water and the ocean well water is the ocean but well not really the ocean is how would you describe ocean is an ecosystem Um, so and the savannas and basically the relationships of water with the landscape in in Australia Um, and so that project um, I handed 20 images over to Fuji um, about a month and a half ago now, two months ago. Um, all shot on the GFX. I love the medium format because I was shooting 35mm, well, you know, 35mm equivalent DSLR. Um, and um, that's on exhibition this month at Fuji Square in Japan, in Tokyo. Um, and then I think oh, wow. it travels. Um, and yeah, so um, my project, yeah, is basically the environmental relationship between water and life and the life it gives and the life it takes away um, and the that's, life it nurtures. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was shocked. I, yeah, it's a, it's, I've been wait- well. I guess I've been working on it for a long time, the Ebb and Flow series, and then it it's. I think I've nearly I've nearly got there. So it will. The Fuji part is done, and and then my part. Yeah, hopefully, not too not too many more months shooting, and I think I will have a fairly comprehensive body of work. Yep. Yep. Nice. All right. Well, I have one more question for you. Who do you recommend? For the podcast, who are some people that we need to learn more about? Oh, well, um, Crystal Wright, um, an amazing photographer, but also an amazing adventurer uh, woman. So um, she has some beautiful work and does some amazing things. Um, You know, if I could even climb a quarter of the mountains that that girl climbs, like, (laughs) I would be happy <laughs> um yeah so Guy Havel um I love his work his work is it's simple and the color palette is beautiful the composition is beautiful his 
his work. He does. He did a um, big documentary on or documentary series on um, in the US last year. Um, but he's an Australian, and his work is amazing. Um, Hubo, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Hubo. Um, oh, I just Kribu follow. Ho? Yeah, yeah. Have you had yeah, her she's on? Great. Yeah, she's been on the show. She her uh, work is fantastic. Just a master of black and white. Hey, well, I reckon. <laughs> oh, modern, absolutely. Modern master whenever, of black yeah, and white. Yeah, whenever people are, just. whenever people ask me for recommendations on black and white, I'm like. Gotta check oh, this one out. Oh my god. And and like I've been following her for a number of years and um I just can't believe she hasn't got like, you know, two million followers kind of thing. Like her work is just exquisite. So good. Um, well, a a local sort of local NT girl that I think just takes beautiful images that sum up the Northern Territory beautifully is Jodie Bilski um, and she's based in Darwin so yeah I think she does some beautiful her colour palette is beautiful and you know just takes some beautiful landscapes without hitting the saturation slider too much and like you know she's her work it's very delicate and just hmm. beautiful uh, yeah but that's who I would recommend um, you know, obviously, people like Mika, who's already been, but yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, awesome. Well, Tanya, this has been super fun, and I just want to thank you for taking the time out of your spending the time in the bush to come hang out with us on the podcast. Thank you, and thank you for having me. <laughs> I hope I haven't talked course. too much. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> Well, thank you to Tanya for the wonderful conversation on the show today. I really appreciate your thoughtfulness and your great recommendations. Congratulations on all of your newfound success, which of course is well-deserved. As always, I love to hear from listeners on your recommendations for guests, or perhaps you think you'd make a good guest. Let me know. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.